Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. My focus this morning will be on verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. I'll be reading 421 through 56. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now brothers, you, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who, who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. and Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, That if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray your mercy on us. We come sinfully inclined to bondage. We are never purely victims in this bondage. Father, may we not 
desecrate, deprecate the precious freedom that we have in Christ. And so have mercy on us and to the praise and the glory of His name. May we walk in this freedom, guard this freedom, be rebellious against any lie that would cause us to submit to a yoke of slavery. Realizing the dire consequences, if we would, and living unto you and love to you and our neighbor out of gratitude and not some effort of merit by the Spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen. If justification by faith alone is the central doctrine of this letter, then why has it been hailed so often as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, the great charter of Christian liberty? Well, after seeing the way that Paul lays down the arguments in chapters 3 and 4, and then seeing after he's made the turn to exhortation in 4.12, yet he brings the argument again in summary, as it were, to lie in full force upon this central command and exhortation, which you have again prefaced in this way, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I hope you can see it's clear why justification and freedom are bound up together in this letter. Justification by faith is bound to freedom as any attempt at justification by works is bound to bondage. We were in slavery to sin to the law with its demands and its curse, and to Satan and the demons. And freedom is found in Christ. The Christ who is grasped by faith, which faith receives Christ as our righteousness. These are not two separate Doctrines. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What is this freedom? Is it just freedom from something? The bondage to sin, the law, its curse, Satan? Is it simply negative? Is it just freedom from something? Or is there also that we're free to something? What is freedom? Consider this. Jonathan Edwards, perhaps his most famous treatise is The Freedom of the Will. And then you have Luther, who his most famous work is very likely The Bondage of the Will. 
And what might be surprising upon reading them is to discover how harmonious the two are. Luther, ever the blunt one, just asserts by the very title that the will is in bondage to sin. And Edwards, in his ever-sophisticated way, says that the will only ever does freely whatever the will wants to. The problem is the want to. Only ever wants to sin. The want to is in bondage. So as Calvin says, to call that kind of freedom, freedom to do whatever you want, is is a big name for a small thing. What Edwards brings out is that being free to do whatever I want to do isn't freedom. But that's exactly what our modern, contemporary, individualistic connotation of freedom is. That's the world's message of freedom. But a fallen man, being free to do whatever he wants to do, is man in bondage to himself. In bondage to a damned fool. As a fish is free in water, we are free when we bow our knees to the sovereign who is life, goodness, truth, and beauty. For a creature to rebel against his creator is for him to rebel against life. It is for him to embrace death, evil, lies, and ugliness. So again, then, what is freedom? Well, certainly it involves, as Paul has laid it out before us, the redemption The being purchased out of our slavery. The redemption that comes by the blood of Christ such that we are reckoned sons. And all the privileges and benefits that pertain to sonship. But central to how Paul is going to tease out this freedom for the remainder of the letter is this. Freedom is is life in the Spirit. You remember, Paul asked the Galatians in 3.1, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is the contrast that Paul will bring them to in his line of argumentation that he's setting forth right here. When in this chapter, in verse 16, he'll ask, I say, or he'll he'll say, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want 
to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see this irony here? Walking by your own desires according to the flesh puts you under the law. Walking by the Spirit is freedom releasing you from the dominion of the law. You might ask, didn't the Judaizers want to obey God, the law, only in such a way that they disobeyed Him? They kept the law only in a way that was violating the law. All their attempts at keeping the law were done in the flesh and by the Spirit. You cannot keep the law by turning from the one who is the fulfillment of the law. All their law keeping was a Christ depreciating. All their law keeping was saying that the one who kept the law wasn't sufficient. He didn't keep it enough. So what is freedom then? It is living by the Spirit. Meaning, it's living unto God by God. It is living as a humble, adoring creature. Living for your Creator in dependence on Him. So can you see why Paul would say elsewhere, Now the Lord is Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. From this gospel indicative flow two central imperatives. The central commands of this letter. For freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The imperatives are rooted in the indicative. These apostolic commands flow from the apostolic gospel. Ethics follow doctrine. Timothy George comments, The energizing principle of Christian ethics then is union with Christ and life in the Spirit. Justification by faith is not a morally barren doctrine. There's really only one command here stated both negatively and positively. Standing firm is not submitting. Not submitting is standing firm. Because freedom is found in Christ. These Galatians are to stand firm against the Judaizers and not submit to their lies. We are to be militant in standing guard for this truth. And rebelliously stubborn in not submitting to any lies that would subvert it. Calvin captures the seriousness of this charge. 
After having told them that they are the children of the free woman, he now reminds them that they ought not lightly to despise a freedom so precious. And certainly it is an invaluable blessing in defense of which it is our duty to fight even to the death. Since not only the highest temporal considerations, but also our eternal interest also animate us to the contest. Whenever Calvin spoke of fighting to the death for this doctrine, he was not speaking metaphorically. This doctrine has been contended for, and it has been contended for to the death. We laud those who fight for lesser freedoms. May we reserve not our only praise, but our highest praise. For the Christ who bled for our eternal freedom. And thereafter, for those who have bled for the message of His blood. If we're not willing to die for this doctrine, we give way to any doctrine of eternal death. If Calvin captured the seriousness of heeding these commands, Luther realized the need. He says, Paul speaks with complete contempt and in an exceeding reproachful manner about the law when he calls it a snare of the harshest slavery and of a servile yoke. He does not do this without reason. The wicked notion that the law justifies clings to the reason very stubbornly. And the whole human race is so enabled and conquered by it that it can be rescued only with the utmost difficulty. You will find, I believe, this inclination clinging to your soul to the grave. You will fight against this all your living days until our righteousness is made perfect. We must stand firm and not submit to lies, the lies that false teachers are peddling because what they're peddling clings so close to what Paul calls the flesh. Paul's three warnings that follow in verses 2 through 4 convey both the need and the seriousness of these central commands. And you see that Paul wants to bring that apostolic authority that he's contended for throughout this letter, he wants it to bring, he wants it to bear upon these warnings. And he says the same thing in every one of these warnings. So there's a kind of emphasis that he's bringing. In this. In each warning there's a condition. It's followed by these. The most dire of consequences. The condition. In each instance. Is a failure to stand firm. And not submit. Verse 2. If circumcision is accepted. Christ is of no advantage. To them. If circumcision is embraced, Christ is released. If circumcision is accepted, Christ is forfeited. 
But, you may wonder, Paul himself was circumcised. And after this letter, after the Jerusalem council, he has Timothy circumcised, Acts 16. Verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. What gives? I've always wondered if Timothy and Titus got together on this. You need to realize that circumcision itself wasn't the issue. It is not as though circumcision is some kind of mystical, magical, spiritual act that somehow severs one from Christ. We need not worry of some militant Muslim severing Christians from Christ by forced circumcision. Paul is speaking of circumcision as part of submitting again to a yoke of slavery. As a first step in symbolic act of coming under the law. Whenever the teaching of the Judaizers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, Acts 15.1, was brought forward to the Jerusalem council. There were some, we're told, who were believers but were part of the party of the Pharisees that said, Acts 15.5, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the whole law of Moses. And Peter, in response, asked, why are you putting God the te- to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we, circumcised Jews, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Dear spiritual cripples, If you want to stand on your own two feet before the holy judge of heaven, know that you cannot stand on those of Christ. If you want anything to do with the great physician, you must admit that you are sick all the way to the depths of your bones. If you are to stand before God, you must stand in Christ and Him alone. Anything else and you will lie limp on the floor, prostrate before the holy judge of heaven. Second, he says, if you accept circumcision, you are obligated to keep the whole law. If you start down the long road of the law, you must go all the way, and it is an impossible way. James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all, of all of it. And Paul already has explained what this guilt means. 3 and verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be 
everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. You cannot opt for a mix and match salvation. You cannot choose an 80-20 split. You cannot choose a 99.99 and a 0.01 split. Justification is not a hybrid, electrical, manual bike that's part you pedaling and part Jesus driving. You will not get in to heaven by Jesus plus the hair of your chinny chin chin. You will get in by Jesus and Jesus alone if you get in. Jesus is an insoluble elixir of life. He cannot be mixed. You must take Him pure and undiluted or you take Him not at all. If you think, I'll trust Jesus, but just in case... I'll try circumcision too. Realize, I believe that's exactly what the Galatians were fearful of and what would motivate them to submit to circumcision. The presence of any safety net demonstrates you're not trusting in Jesus. Rather, you're wanting to treat Jesus like a safety net while you trust in your own works. Trust in Jesus plus works is not trust in Jesus. Concerning Rome's attempt to mix Jesus, Calvin says, the tendency of their whole doctrine is to blend the grace of Christ with the merit of works, which is impossible. Whoever wishes to have the half of Christ loses the whole. If you try to supplement Jesus, you've got no Jesus. You're on your own. And the standard that stands over you is the whole law. This third final warning. Those who would be justified by Christ, this time he gives, sandwiches it between two consequences. Severed from Christ, fallen away from grace. If you would be justified by the law, you will not find a gracious justification, but wrathful justice. Paul tells the Gentile Christians of Ephesus, you were once separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What made the difference? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Inversely, Paul is telling these Gentiles who would act like Jews under the law that if they seek to be justified by the law, they are Gentiles indeed. In the outer darkness, separated from Christ. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. It's not to say that they've lost their salvation. Paul speaks to appearances. 
Here is one who has professed Christ, who appears to have embraced Christ, who is part of the community of the redeemed, visibly. And he wants them to know that should you seek to be justified by faith, by works, excuse me, you have no part in Christ. As John explains to his disciples, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And as if he had not laid down enough grounds for why these warnings are so in chapters 3 and 4, he lays them down afresh. Through the Spirit, verse 5, in contrast with the flesh. By faith, in contrast with works. We wait in contrast with striving for the hope of righteousness. This is no doubt related to the inheritance, the promise that Paul has been speaking of. By hope of righteousness, he could mean either that hope that stems from the righteousness we have in Christ, or the hope of our righteousness being perfected. Regardless, we have this certain hope as we wait for it through the Spirit and by faith. Through the flesh, by works, we have no hope because we have no righteousness. And as if that were not enough, Paul gives the basis for this basis in verse 6. Through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for this hope because in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. This echoes what Paul said in 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This continues to reverberate in chapter 6 whenever he says, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What counts? Faith. Working through love. Paul might be qualifying, defining, explaining the kind of faith that counts. Telling us what true faith is. True faith is the kind of faith that works itself out in love. A non-working faith is a dead faith. It's a non-faith. As James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead Calvin clarified the issue when he said, It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. The faith that saves is the faith that clings to Christ. And that faith springs from a new heart. A heart that loves. Paul may be then defining faith here. Or he might be speaking of the kind of work. The kind of deeds. The kind of obedience that does please God. Please God. Not for justification. But the kind that do count. The kind that he does recognize. And they're the kind that are done 
in Christ. In Christ, circumcision doesn't count for anything. Uncircumcision doesn't count for anything. What counts? Faith. Working through love. I think this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians when he says, Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Coming under the law, seeking to be justified by the law, severs one from Christ. But in Christ, faith works through love, and that's the kind of obedience that pleases the Father. Not an obedience for justification, but an obedience from justification. Not an obedience of merit, but an obedience of gratitude. Justification results in freedom to love God and love others. All other efforts at obedience are ultimately not an expression of love of others or of God, but of self. You're obeying for your own skin. But this is the kind of freedom that we have in Christ as our righteousness. We love because He first loved us. And in the overflow of joy and in faith, that gets worked out in true love to our neighbor and our God. And so upon these grounds, I exhort you again with the words of Paul. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Be militant and standing guard for the righteousness that comes by faith alone in Christ alone. And rebellious in submitting to any teaching that would say otherwise. So that in the freedom of Christ we might, by the Spirit, in faith, love our God and love our neighbor. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. May Your Spirit use it now to communicate the truths of the Gospel so that from this indicative that for freedom, Christ has set us free, we might stand firm, we might not submit, and we might walk in the Spirit, and that our faith would work itself out in love. In Christ's name, amen.